Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Adrian Lowcock, Head of Personal Investing at Willis Owen, and Phil Kent, Director of Asset Manager Gravis and Lead Advisor to GCP Infrastructure Investments. Following the suspension of Elif Woodford Equity Income Fund, the Financial Conduct Authority has opened an investigation into the events that led to the suspension of the fund. Although the FCA is not disclosing details of the nature of this investigation, in a recent letter to the Treasury, FCA Chief Executive Andrew Bailey did note some of the features of this fund. Although the FCA is not disclosing details of the nature of this investigation, in a recent letter to the Treasury Committee, FCA Chief Executive Andrew Bailey did note some of the features of this fund they had been monitoring, including how quickly it could liquidate its investments. Adrian, do you think the level of liquid investments Elif Woodford Equity Income held was concerning, and how apparent was it that many would be likely to take some time to sell? I think, yes, it is concerning. And I think it's concerning because this, the nature of this um, investment was perceived as a core equity income holding for a lot of individual investors, so not necessarily experienced investors. The sort of size of the, of the, of the, uh, the illiquid holdings, it had been sort of growing and it was referred to and mentioned. Um, I think what wasn't perhaps explained well uh, often enough and, and, and indeed so enough is actually how things can change quite quickly and, and what would happen if if investors sold the investment, um, uh, so effectively the suspension of the investment and actually the suitability of that and the appropriateness for, for the people holding it. Okay. I mean, you mentioned that a lot of people thought it was a core equity income product, but actually, I mean, Neil Woodford very unusually disclosed all of the investments in that fund. So isn't that actually more the fault of the investors that they didn't actually bother to look at the literature on the website and the, um, to see that you know what all the holdings were and the fact that some of them were unlisted? I think you do need to check what you're doing as an investor. But I think as an investor, what what you are doing is you're effectively paying a fund manager to invest that money on your behalf. So you you know you are sort of trusting them to, to invest that money appropriately. And I think that's the responsibility you have. Um, as a fund manager, is to is to actually consider who you're in, uh, who you're investing the money on behalf of. Um, you have a responsibility to be uh, diligent and conscientious about that. It's not the fund manager's money. It's you know households' money. It's people's. It's grandparents. It's retired families. Um, it's people with children. It's therefore there's a big onus and responsibility, and we've got to, that should be taken very seriously by the fund manager to invest very responsibly and appropriately. And I think with an equity income fund. You know, the core, you know, the name is a hint. It's a focusing for income, looking to invest in shares for income. With, with it being such a high-profile fund manager that was running this fund, you know, his, his, his style had always been, previously, had been sort of quite large cap and, uh, and, and, and quite mainstream. So I think investors sort of expected that to continue. There, there were signs, and it, it, it is a case that as, as, a, as a client, as an investor, you do need to just check, you know, what, what, don't just you know, trust what's on the tin and do, do, do some work. Um, but, I, but I do sympathize with investors who, who perhaps trusted the fund manager and trusted the reputation of the fund manager, and you know, the portfolio changed over time. It wasn't, you know, it, it didn't start like this. It changed materially over time. Investors often look at things like a fund's performance, largest holdings and charges, but don't necessarily consider finding out how liquid its investments are. But how much importance should they place on that in view of recent events? And actually, is it any way of assessing it? 
Yeah, I, this is a, I mean, a very good question because most of the time, liquidity shouldn't be an issue. And, and for most funds, it's not an issue. And, it, you know, a good example of, you know, during the financial crisis, there was a lot of um, fear and panic going around and a lot of, um, and understandably so. Um, and liquidity was an issue in some markets. Um, but it was it was sort of focused on things like property. In, in equities, it was less so small, you know, but, but there is an impact because, you know, smaller companies tend to be less liquid. There isn't as many shares initially. They're not as big. And therefore, you see share prices fall a lot more in, in, in sort of when investors are becoming more cautious. So liquidity has an impact that even on investments, you perhaps, you know, you can still sell. It usually impacts the price you can sell at um, and doesn't usually sort of stop you selling easily. It just means that you have to sell something at a lower price than you perhaps would have liked. So it is important to consider it. But for the most part, you know, you wouldn't usually need to be overly concerned about it. And this is where this is where this has become a bit of a shock for, for, for investors, for the industry and, and, and particularly for the equity income. It's not something you would have expected in this. You'd expected it in other uh, investments, but not necessarily one like this. Going forward, I think it you know it's going to be increasingly useful for investors to at least have an understanding and, and you know, showing on the fact sheet or something some sort of liquidity factor that can show you you know actually how liquid this investment is, just so that it's transparent and and easily accessible. So if you do want to do that digging around, you can look at it a bit more. You mentioned you know it doesn't affect a lot of funds. I suppose thinking you know probably yeah mainstream equity or mainstream bond funds. I mean, so actually, I mean, you know, if you're in a, a just a large cap developed markets equity fund or something like that that doesn't have enlisted, which is obviously uh, something unique to LF Woodford Equity Income, do you really, really need to bother about liquidity of investments? Um, I think so. So yeah, the, the large cap stuff isn't 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 so much of an issue, but it's. You know, it, for me, it's the transparency because um, and understand you know and, and the availability mm. of that information. And I think it's also important to you know there are other, there are other sort of mainstream investments. So there's commercial property, which is I think much more well known for its illiquid nature. Yeah. Um, but also you know, and I mentioned it, uh, the, the smaller company shares. You know, they, one one of the risks of smaller company shares is we sort of we often sort of describe how they can be more volatile and they mm. can rise and fall an awful lot more more. And some of that is because smaller companies are are riskier, but some of it is actually. They are that they aren't as liquid as well. Um, so it, it, it's you know, and it's sort of described as a characteristic of volatility. Um, it does. It, it, it's useful information, I think. Um, I think it, it, it's probably a case of um, a bit of a bit of belt and braces, just to be over, you know, to be sort of more transparent and and open, you know, because for me, this is a, the important things of this is there's a big big mission that we now need to undertake as an industry to rebuild trust and confidence with investors. So I think it has been very damaged by this event. Um, and I think, you know, we need to sort of say, actually, how can we help investors get more transparency on it? But by and large, it won't affect most funds. And it is a very unique situation. However, it's one that should have been avoided. Um, and one that investors should have been able to make a decision more clearly on as well. Okay. Now, Closed-ended funds, such as investment trusts, don't have to meet investor redemptions because to dispose of your shares in one of these, you have to sell them to another investor in the secondary market yeah. rather than ask for your money back from the fund. So if you're going to invest in unquoted or enlisted investments, um, are you better using a closed-ended fund such as an investment trust? 
Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, it's it's. I think it's fine for sort of open-ended funds to maybe have a tiny bit of exposure to unlisted stuff, um, and you know, there probably needs to be tightening and improvement in the rules about how that works. But generally speaking, if you want a significant exposure and a manager who specialises in unlisted uh, pre-IPO stocks and private equity type investments, then the investment trust space is much better for that because it's just got a a, um, a a better structure. You, you know, they don't have to sell underlying investments. Um, they're not forced into a, a, a buyer sell, um, which which effectively protects any investors who want to remain in that stock, uh, as well as allowing those who want to get out of it uh, to actually, um, you know, make that make that um, uh, decision uh, without without impacting anyone. Of course, I think it's important to remember, even even though the investment trust works. If you're selling and everyone else is selling at the mm. same time, then the price you will get will fall, um, and therefore the price might not reflect the underlying value of the assets. Um, and we've seen this in uh, Neil Woodford's Patient Capital Trust. It's fallen on concerns that there's going to be a, you know, some some of the investments are linked to his uh, uh, suspended uh, fund, and and the um, fund, uh, the investment trust now trades at a significant discount to the, the underlying net asset value at present. Okay. Now, another issue that led to the suspension of LF Woodford Equity Income Fund was the volume of redemptions from it. So how big an issue are flows of money in and out of open-ended funds? And is there any way that you, um, as an ordinary investor, can monitor them? Uh, So usually, because you've got the liquidity uh, there, then flows are, are, are fairly manageable. Um, and that, that you know there are going to be periods when money flows in faster and money flows out faster. Um, there are exceptional periods, so things like the financial crisis where money was flowing out uh, of a lot of a lot of different asset classes actually quite quickly. You know, and it's quite hard to sort of know that until until it's happened. And and these things can happen quite quickly. That uh, actually it's a very difficult thing to sort of get a, get ahead of, if you like. So you don't. It, it's hard to see, but it, it happens. But you know, even during the financial crisis, it, it, the only funds that were really impacted by it were again property funds, which you know mm-hmm. are highly illiquid. Most equity funds you could get. The the impact was on valuations in stock markets. You know, the FTSE 100 for collapsing, um, and and most global stock markets collapsing as a combination of investors selling and the events that were going on at the time. Okay, thank you, Adrian. Some really interesting uh, points and helpful tips on how to monitor funds. Investing in infrastructure has traditionally been the preserve of large institutional investors such as pension funds. But over the past decade, increasing numbers of listed infrastructure funds have launched in the UK, enabling smaller private investors to get exposure to this asset. Many of these funds use their assets to buy stakes in infrastructure projects, such as Private Finance Initiative Schemes, PFI. But GCP Infrastructure Investments, which is managed by today's guest, Phil Kent, takes a slightly different approach. Phil, how does GCP Infrastructure Investments differ to many other listed infrastructure funds? GCP Infrastructure is predominantly an investor in infrastructure debt, so it explicitly targets debt products. However, in certain cases recently, we have taken more equity-like characteristics as part of that debt in more mature asset classes. 
I think another area it differs is the fund has an explicit objective to diversify across a number of different asset classes. Having started as a company targeting sub-debt investments in PFI, the company's exposure has developed to include renewables and social housing. Having been one of the first investors in a number of sectors, for example, rooftop solar, we've therefore invested in asset classes that were not mature. We've sought more protection through the capital structure and then hence the focus on debt. For example, taking solar, the risks of investing in that asset class when we made our first investments were very different to if you were looking at the same asset class today. Questions like what is the feed-in tariff, how are those projects going to be built, what's the the, the sun regime in the UK? Um, and as that sector has matured, those risks have fallen away and, and people view the asset class in a very different way. So our focus on debt has really been where we've focused on asset classes that don't have, I guess, a maturity of the asset risk um, to offset the, the capital structure protection that, that we seek. OK. Now, from an investor point of view, um, why why invest in infrastructure debt rather than, you know, in the projects, um, stakes like, you know, the other funds do? Sure. So debt provides more protection in that there's a, a first loss position. So the ownership of the asset sits elsewhere. And, and I guess any immediate value changes to the asset driven by market prices or, or credit events impact someone else before they start impacting debt. So and that, that applies both up and down. Um, changes in value don't impact the cash flows debt investors are forecast to receive immediately. Um, as a debt investor, there's a third party owner of the assets who would take a lead in the, the resolution of challenges as they arise. That means as a, as a debt investor, our involvement in decision making and control is more passive. And that relationship is governed by the loan documentation and, and the undertakings and provisions of that loan that are in place between us as a lender and, and the borrowers. I think finally, the security associated with debt means that um, whether that security is senior or subordinated, in an enforcement scenario, lenders have the ability to exercise increased control and receive senior recovery of any proceeds through an enforcement. I think it's probably also worth saying um, that there comes a point where debt becomes so subordinated versus equity that actually you're you're not getting much value out of the debt instrument. So the the protection you have, you're effectively taking. Um, you're taking all of the downside risk without, I guess, some of the upside risk associated with the equity. So there comes a point where where that protection is, um, is I guess, not worth giving away the upside that you would get. And I think recently in more mature asset classes, such as onshore wind, offshore wind, we've, we've seen that dynamic and therefore elected to, to take more equity-like positions. Okay. Now, um, obviously, as you say, it's safer, um, but um, I suppose risk level does relate to returns. So how does GCP Infrastructure Investments return profile differ from those of its peers which take equity stakes in the projects predominantly? So we're one of the high yielding trusts in our peer group and we've been able to maintain an attractive 7.6 pence dividend over the last six years or so and that represents around a 6% yield on the share price. And I think our ability to maintain that, I guess, in a predominantly debt portfolio has principally been driven by the ability to invest in multiple asset classes and targeting asset classes early and um, before they, they reach a level of maturity and, and lots of capital comes in to chase those asset classes, driving yields down. Um, because of the focus on debt, I guess another dynamic is that the share price in NAV tends to be less volatile than some of our, our peers that, that are more exposed to equity. Okay. Now, GCP infrastructure investments net asset value returns haven't been quite as high um, as some of those of its peers. Is this because it invests in debt? 
correct as a result of the focus on debt, we haven't generated as much capital growth as our peers. NAV growth that has occurred has resulted from the revaluation of the debt instruments that that we have. Um, in addition to diversification, our, our other objectives are focusing on income generation and capital preservation. So really, there is a focus on capital preservation rather than capital growth. Okay. Now, what kind of infrastructure projects debt do you invest in? GCP has invested in senior and subordinated debt in three main sectors, which are PPP and within PPP various forms of that, whether that's PFI or, or various other schemes that take that sort of model, renewables and social housing, with renewables making up the largest proportion at around 65%, PPP around 20% and social housing the remainder. Within renewables, we've got exposure to a diverse range of asset classes, um, including solar, wind, both onshore and offshore, hydro, anaerobic digestion and biomass. Okay. Now, um, a lot of the listed infrastructure funds just focus on one area of infrastructure. But as, as you've been saying, you've very well diversified. Why do you do this as opposed to, you know, picking one area and going for it like, um, like the other funds? So diversification is an explicit objective of the fund. We've sought to target asset classes before they mature. And I think as a result of being exposed to a diversified set of assets, our performance is not directly linked to the evolution of any one asset class. Across renewables, as an example, we've seen asset classes mature and yields quite significantly reduce as those sectors have matured and investors have become more familiar with the sectors and the risk in those sectors. So our ability to move into new asset classes and continue to diversify and as well as that target different parts of the capital structure at that point have been an important differentiator for us. You mentioned that among other things, you have exposure to debt relating to PFI schemes. But the future of these isn't clear. I mean, the government's exploring alternative financing options and the Labour Party said if it gets into power, it'll nationalise them. So how much of a risk is it to have exposure to these in the fund? Firstly, the current government, and I appreciate there's a lot of uncertainty in government, but the current government has been very clear that it will continue to support existing PFI projects. We also note that the current government has stated it won't use PFI or PF2 or similar mechanisms moving forward and it doesn't have any any expectation of doing that. I think the current infrastructure finance review, a consultation that the government published uh, a number of months ago, which the company has responded to, is seeking views on alternative models of public support for the sectors that PFI and PPP historically have supported. So we await the outcomes of that with interest. In respect of a Labour government and their proposals to nationalise PFI, I think we'd consider that further detail is needed to fully evaluate that risk. At face value, there's a number of things that need to happen before this becomes a reality, including the Labour government needing to get in. A policy needs to be developed more than it is today, and and that policy needs to get through Parliament. I think it's also worth saying that PFI covers a huge range of asset classes from small leisure or community centres through to to large transport projects or acute hospital projects. And therefore, we consider that any policy could be focused on a subset of that wider market and we're very much exposed to the, the smaller projects end of that market. So I think the likelihood of, of it happening, there is a strong debate over. I think to take it, the case it were to happen and what's the magnitude and, and the scale of the impact, I think we have to make the assumption that any nationalisation occurs through the contractual routes available to the government to nationalise and, and a lot of PFI contracts have voluntary termination provisions contained within them. I think the main impact would be where um, that termination provision makes a payment that's linked to a, 
a return hurdle that was set when that project was first put in place. And as discount rates have come down and, and those assets have been traded on secondary or tertiary markets since, then that termination payment wouldn't cover the full value of a secondary or tertiary investor's investment in those assets. So uh, we've analysed that in the context of our portfolio and we expect that would be around a, a 30 to £35 million impact if that were to happen today. So in the context of a £1.1 billion company, it's it's material but manageable. Yeah, pretty small. I suppose it would be fair to say as well, you um, a diversified fund, it's not like you just invest in PFI, is it? I mean, roughly what percentage of your assets is so around 20 percent sit in pfi and i guess within that we Mm -hmm. there are different termination mechanisms and termination Mm -hmm. payment mechanisms a number of which we consider would compensate us for the full fair value we hold those assets at okay so what would you say are the main risks to the investments you hold we divide risks in infrastructure assets into four main buckets, the first of which is market risk. So this is the risk of an asset being exposed to market prices such as electricity prices or inflation, which are volatile and change often, but tend not to change by very much. The second is credit risk. So all of the investments we uh, we invest in are reliant on third parties to monetize those assets, whether that's constructing the asset or operating the asset or, or off taking the services from the asset and therefore the ongoing performance of the obligations of those third parties is is critical in maintaining the value of that asset. Thirdly, operational risks. These are all living, breathing assets that need to be operated on a day-to-day basis. And there's various levels of complexity within our portfolio of doing that. Operating a solar park is very different to operating a, a waste biomass plant. And finally, political risks, which we've just discussed, but I think there's two aspects to that. Um, GCP Infrastructure Investments Targets is a UK-focused fund, so we're exposed to, I guess, UK PLC-type risks, so changes to corporation tax or health and safety legislation changes, which puts uh, additional cost on projects to operate. And then secondly, I think all infrastructure is often linked to a, a government support mechanism, whether that's explicit revenue support, some form of capital support or, or some more bespoke support. And therefore, any change to that support mechanism, um, which is a political risk, will ultimately impact the value of the project. And, and in certain cases, that could be a material impact. Now, on a more positive note, mm-hmm. um, where do you see the best infrastructure investment opportunities going forward? The UK Infrastructure Projects Authority um, announced or put out a pipeline at the end of last year, which identified around 600 billion of investment requirement in new infrastructure in the UK over the next decade. And it was really interesting to look at that. And, and they attributed around half of that investment as being needed to come from the, the private sector. And that was predominantly in two different areas, in utilities and in energy. So analysing that further Within utilities, I think we'd identify that as being predominantly investments that are going to occur through utility balance sheets, such as National Grid's ongoing capital replacement budget. So really, we're looking in the energy sector. And I think there is a, there is a real job we have to do in energy, given the climate change targets that have recently been increased by the government to a net zero ambition by 2050. So there's a material change needed to the way we generate electricity, to the way we use heat, to the way we um, we use energy and transport. So I think we're looking at those sectors very closely. There's certain things that are, are there today in the renewable heat incentive, for example, that are, is promoting investment in, in heat, um, renewable heat applications. I think more needs to be done clearly to hit those targets. I think um, outside of offshore wind, where it'd be really interesting to see whether the um, CF, the contract for difference round that happened in May will end up, um, which I think we expect it to predominantly support offshore wind projects. I think outside of that, that really, really isn't much by way of, of live 
policy that is in place today to support, I think, the scale of change or the scale of opportunity that the pipeline that I mentioned has identified. So I think there's a bit of an inconsistency there at the moment that we hope the infrastructure finance review I mentioned earlier will go some way to trying to address. Um, But I think, I think, it's fair to say that the attractive areas that we see and the opportunity we see is predominantly in energy in its various forms, whether that's electricity generation, heat generation, transport, waste. Okay. And um, obviously, um, we've just been also talking about PFI. If you do increasingly go towards energy, um, you know, do you expect to further reduce the exposure you have to PFI in the portfolio? I think that's the the natural result of their, I guess, PFI, PF2 not ceasing to be mechanisms a government are looking to support and at the same time having mechanisms that are supporting renewables. I think we would also observe that as part of the Infrastructure Projects Authority pipeline and, and just generally we still need community services, we still need leisure services, we still need healthcare investment, we still need judiciary investments. All of the sectors that PFI has historically supported haven't gone away and the need for renewing that infrastructure hasn't gone away. So I think the government, my sense of the consultation is they're looking at alternative models to PFI to support that. So whether we label it as PFI or PF2, we would hope that we can. there is a mechanism where we can continue to support those asset classes under a new model of government support, whatever that may be. Okay. Now, finally, like many of its sector peers, GCP Infrastructure Investments is trading on a premium to net asset value, 15% as of the 20th of June. So have you been issuing shares to try and reduce this? Um, And will you issue shares in future? So we've never issued shares to manage the premium. That's not been a focus of our our board. Um, Historically, any share issuance has been driven by an attractive pipeline of investment opportunities that we can readily deploy any capital uh, we raise into. In terms of new capital raises, I think the same statement applies. So we have an active pipeline. We're continually monitoring that pipeline. And to the extent that we have enough certainty over that pipeline and and it's attractive enough, that, that would be the prompt for raising any capital in the future. Okay, thank you, Phil. A really interesting insight into GCP infrastructure investments and the areas you invest in. That brings us to the end of today's show, but also see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on the suspension of Ellif Woodford equity income, what's happening to Neil Woodford's other funds and alternative investments like infrastructure. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. <laughs>